Hey, Eric. Hi, how's it going? I'm excited, man. Um, we said uh, last time that we were going to review a book, so um, let's go ahead and do it. Yeah, to my great surprise, I read the book in three days. Wow. It seemed like the sort of book I would take two years to read. Yeah. Because that is not unusual for me. <laughs> okay. <laughs> when I have, you know, I have 20 books going at the time, and the nonfiction books usually take the longest to get through. Mm -hmm. But three days. Three, three, days. three days. Fantastic. Yeah, I mean, I read it over a weekend. As I said, the missus read it over a weekend. The book of, of choice today is? The Ghost of Eternal Polygamy by Carolyn Pearson, subtitled Haunting the Hearts and Heaven of Mormon Women and Men. So polygamy's like, got to be one of the weirdest topics in our I church. I think if we cover, did a right? poll, I think most Latter-day Saints would intentionally or unintentionally forget to mention it. Uh -huh. And people outside the church, it would be their number one thing. <laughs> That's a very good way to put it. That's right. Um, it's to the point where I'm kind of nervous about talking about it, to be honest. It, with, in what circumstances? I don't know. Um, it really is a topic nearly completely avoided at church. Don't you think that's true? Yes, I think that's true. And I think that's been true for a while, though I think it's probably more true than it used to be. Yeah, that's right. And when it does come up, it can get awkward very quickly. It can get awkward really quickly, and it usually just gets shut down really quickly. I honestly can't remember a time it came up in church recently. Yeah, that's I, right. I can't think of a time where it was shut down because I can't think of a time where it came up. And, you know, it's probably for the best because, you know, it is a difficult topic. Um, however, the reason I phrased it, I actually phrased it that way on purpose. Phrased what? That, that way? My question, like, or my statement that it's, you know... Um, uh, it's got to be one of the weirdest topics mm -hmm. is because I thought that that phrasing would be deliberately dismissive. Okay. Okay. And the reason I wanted to phrase it that way is because I feel like in my life I've been too dismissive of it. I've been too not even thinking about it or even caring yeah. about it as a topic or how it would affect uh, the people around me. It, it, comes from a real statement of, I don't know, um, of just not being as severely affected by it, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, I remember early in our marriage, I think the ghost of eternal polygamy, as Sister Pearson refers to it, like I think that hovered over us a little bit more than it has recently. Mm -hmm. um, but there's no question that it's been in the back of my mind, even though, like you, I haven't really thought about it very much for a while. Um, but my first work of fiction that was published on paper um, was a polygamy story um, about a modern, modern polygamy story and a widower, a modern widower who's getting remarried and, and the specter of the first wife sort of hanging over them and what does that mean? Right. Um, so so it's, it's clearly in my mind. I just didn't realize how important it was to me, even though it comes up in my own work a lot. Right. And so I'm trying to say is that um, I kind of feel like I need to apologize to everybody around me for not having <laughs> for not having taken it as seriously as maybe it should be taken because the fact of the matter is that our church still believes in polygamy we do uh, yeah and that's what that was one of the most awkward parts i think of this conversation is going to be just admitting that fact because if you yeah. asked if you asked me if a random person on the street stopped me and said, do Mormons believe in polygamy, right? Do you practice polygamy? Not since 1890, buddy. Yeah, yeah absolutely not. We do not practice it. It is... It's a sure road to excommunication. Right. You cannot do it. You should not do it. And um, 
It was, and then there'd be like, but didn't you practice it in the past? Oh yeah, we practiced it in the past, but we've long since given it up. Right. Right. But sort of like horses. But but Carolyn Pearson's first point in the book is that that is just not the case, and that it comes and it and that our and our and that it comes from the temple. Yes, um, you know it's interesting. Uh, so I'm a little bit older than my wife, mm -hmm. and um, I went on a mission. She did not. And so I had some years of temple experience before she went to the temple for the first time. And I don't know if from the very first time I went to the temple, but by the time Lindsay was ready to go to the temple, I was very aware of all the um, differences between what men did and what women did. And I was pretty uncomfortable with it. And I was prepared for her to be very uncomfortable with it. Mm -hmm. uh, but she didn't notice it for uh, initially and, and, um, and didn't notice it, didn't really think about it for quite a while. Um, but it doesn't change the fact that whether you notice it or not, it's there. And once you do notice it, well, there it is. Mm -hmm. I feel like we should put maybe a few disclaimers here. The first disclaimer is that I'm not an expert on Mormon history. Okay. Yes, we are not historians, theologians. And the, our second disclaimer... Or ordained to uh, <laughs> prophetic roles. Right, right. <laughs> our second disclaimer is that um, I think our goal for today's discussion is really to talk about the book as she presented it. Sure. And then maybe also give our opinions about the stories that she presents and her conclusions. Yes, right. and I, I think it would be fair to say that we recommend the book. Absolutely. That might be is our ultimate goal, is to try to get more people to read it. Because it really was, um, it, it was profoundly impacting for me to, to read it. And I thought it was a very difficult read, but I thought it was really worth doing. And I, I felt Well, define rewarded. what you mean by difficult, because it's not like the sentences are difficult. Okay, fair enough. Um, let's go ahead and springboard off that comment to my first quote. Which page do you want me to find? I actually want to go from a book review, okay? Oh, okay, go ahead. This is a book, this is a review of the book. From, by Common um, Consent. By, from Common Consent, by Rebecca J. Rebecca J. That's what she says. She says, what you must bear in mind, if or when you read The Ghost of Eternal Polygamy, is that Carol Lynn Pearson is a poet, not a scholar. This is not to say that Pearson doesn't know what she's talking about, that she hasn't studied the relevant issues. Obviously she has. But she approaches this project as part memoir, part meditation on what polygamy means to contemporary Mormons, and what is required to build what she calls a partnership Zion rather than a patriarchal one. Yes. Okay? And I thought th out of this review that Rebecca, J we'll put this link, of course, in the show notes, This re out of this review, this paragraph I thought was very good. She, um, this book is a meditation, it is a collection of stories, and there's some history but it's mainly a study in emotion, I would say. Yes, and as we talked about in the Heavenly Mother episode, I think there's a very important role that poets have to play in understanding our faith, or artists generally, uh, not just poets, but I think that art of all kinds lets us um, come at things that maybe we can't otherwise. Like a scholar can only say what the truth of the past has been, or what the logical conclusions seem to be. Um, a poet is not held back by those, um, those kinds of, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Those strictures. A poet can explore uh, capital T truth as opposed to just making sure all the little T truths are correctly lined up. Which isn't to say she doesn't have lots of little T truths in here. There's a lot of facts in here and useful facts. Yeah. And one of the things that I found most compelling um, was the journal entries from women of the polygamy era. 
because I knew a lot of the stories about these women and how they publicly said that polygamy was good. I didn't realize that simultaneously they were writing their journals about what hell it was. Yeah, that was surprising to me, too. I didn't know about that. Um, I want to do one more disclaimer, though, before we launch really launch okay. into the meat of it. And that is that um, I I love the church. <laughs> I feel like it could I feel like this topic it could come if we go into the details of it, it I could accidentally come across as someone that is um it, 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 that you know that I would have a problem with some things and I do have some problems um that and I agree with a lot of what she says but I love the church in her book she's very clear about how much she loves Joseph Smith yes. and I feel the same way and um I'm coming at this topic as an active, faithful Mormon, and I want to understand more and help other people understand that these particular doctrines are actively causing um, negative emotions and pain among members of the church. Yes. And that, um, but I love the church and I just want to help. Right. I think what it comes down to is you don't prune a tree you're going to let die. I don't know if that's a good metaphor. I just came up with that right now. Oh, well, hey, look, <laughs> this is the right time to come up with metaphors. We're doing a poet book, after all. That's right. <laughs> all right, is that enough disclaimers? I think that's I think that's good. Okay, well, let's talk a bit about the book itself. It's a, it's a slim book, right? Yeah, It's uh, the type is pretty big. It's um, mm-hmm. bigger than 12 point, I think. But not 14 point. It's probably 12 point. Right. Um, there's plenty of white space. There's, there's inter-chapter sections with just quotations from people who wrote to her about how polygamy had affected them. Um, it's, a, it's, a, it's a pleasant read. So let's talk about how she decided to approach the project, this, the first place. Let's go to page eight, and we're going to talk about the thesis of the book. Thesis of the book. Okay, so here's what she did. Um, she says that in March of... So first of all, she the first thing she does is she describes the problem, okay? Okay. So let's um, describe describe the issues. There's kind of three points that she makes. Okay, a Mormon man, widowed or divorced, can... Okay, so here's... Okay, without reading it, I'll just summarize. Yes, that's if probably you go better. To, if, you, if you go to the temple and you're sealed to your spouse, first of all... As a man. As you a man. as a man in this sentence. And you as a man. If a man goes to the temple and is sealed to his spouse, first of all, what a wonderful thing that is to be have a marriage for time yeah, and all eternity. It's bueno. Let's not lose track of how awesome that is. Mm-hmm. Okay? Okay, and then the wife dies, you know, and that's very sad. The man can be sealed to another woman. Yes. Okay? And that wh- that sealing would remain in effect, both sealings. That is uh, yes, as we are currently, okay? Which would mean after after death is what we're saying. Right. Okay? Eternal polygamy. Eternal polygamy. That's the whole point of the book. A contrary is not true. A woman cannot be sealed to multiple men. No, and in fact, it can be a huge hassle to um, get a sealing canceled. Mm-hmm. Yes. Which I was under the impression, and she mentions this story of how uh, David O. McCaffe threw his hands in the air one time and said, just seal them all together and let God work it out in the afterlife. Right. I was under the impression that was policy. Yeah. But no, that's just a fun anecdote from the 50s, and in fact, all these problems are still in place 60 yeah. years later. To be honest, I also thought that was the case. Mm-hmm. But this is what I was trying to get out earlier. The problem, my problem is, I don't want to use the word privilege, but it is kind of a privilege. Sure. I have, one, you know, I have a wonderful marriage, and um, it's, no, 
none of us have died. Yes. <laughs> and that puts me in a situation where I don't have to worry about this these is problems. Not, this is not an immediate issue. <laughs> this is not an immediate issue for me. But for the people that it is an, an issue, or for the women who worry that their husband will reseal to someone and they'll right. have to and they will be without I mean I think women should I think men and women should really be talking about this that it yes. shouldn't be a surprise <laughs> right and as I I think I mentioned I think this may have been before we started recording but I don't think so Lindsay and I did discuss it somewhat early in our marriage this mm -hmm. question of dying like mm -hmm. don't die like what are the rules if you die because yeah. the rules of what you do after you die has a greater significance for us than it does for right. your average religious person for your average religious religious person when the when one of the people dies and they get remarried that's fine because they don't believe that marriages last forever right not doctrinally not doctrinally they might believe it personally personally right right that we have this specific sealing ceremony okay so that's kind of the those are kind of the issues right and everything that comes from that you know if you were in an abusive marriage and get divorced and then you get married and um all your kids are still sealed to your first husband potentially yeah unless you get permission to delete it and sometimes they won't because uh, anyway it's complicated and it can get mm -hmm. i don't think ugly is too strong of a word yeah it can be very difficult the point is that um these relationships which are supposed to be relationships of love and celebration can cause worry and we're going to show mm -hmm. we're going to talk specifically about this okay so in march of 2014 i here being carolyn pearson reached out to mormons and former mormons via social media asking them to take a survey about their opinions and feelings regarding the lds concept of eternal polygamy and the inequality of the sealing practices i'm going to read this whole quote okay because it's important for the conversation go right on on the first day more than 2400 people took the survey Four weeks later, more than 8,000 had responded. Since the respondents were self-selected, the sample is not necessarily representative of the population of members and former members of the LDS Church. In this particular survey, 70% of the respondents were female, 30% male, 76% were, uh, were married, 91% were currently members of the Church, 9% were former members. 51% were very active, and 16 somewhat active. 93% of the very active people held current temple recommends. So here's the meat of the story. 58% of the reported feelings of sadness or anger regarding the thought of eternal polygamy and the sealing policies. Fewer than 10% responded having positive emotions on these issues. So she got all these stories back mm. from people. It wasn't just a survey. People right. wrote stories. It's a striking set of numbers. It's a striking set of numbers. And the stories... And you told me this before you lent me the book, that the stories are powerful. To hear so many different voices and why and how eternal polygamy has caused them emotional, spiritual, and other kinds of pain and grief. Mm -hmm. She collected all these stories from all these people, and every chapter in the book has about two or three pages of essentially words about... Um, <laughs> yeah. Polygamy anecdotes. Polygamy anecdotes. Was there one that particularly struck you? Um, they were all striking in different ways. Um, no, I don't think there's a particular one I want to share. It's it's really the sort of the montage aspect of having so many stories that makes each individual story more effective than it might have been otherwise. The part, the one that that really, the stories that really got me, okay, mm -hmm. are the ones about women who 
held back parts of their yeah of their didn't of, feel like they could they could trust their husband to the yeah. marriage because he might get remarried right he right might get resealed and that's the part that really just broke my heart that was the part that was the hardest for me to to read and the number of pioneer women who like said, it's hard for me to talk and, about and right current now. women who were say I would rather go to hell yeah than than to practice this in the afterlife okay let me make a specific point here it doesn't in face and hat as a podcast yes. one of our goals is to use logic and well-researched <laughs> documentation about issues yes that is not the point of this episode no although all that stuff exists all that stuff exists we are examining the real emotions that people feel you can argue well in the doctrine and covenants it says this and that right or god works in mysterious ways or there you know at the end of the at the end of the day everybody will be happy because that's mm -hmm. god's plan and we'll all work it out in the end. And if you asked me, I would mm -hmm. tell you that I would agree with all those statements. But They're that's not, not helpful statements. That's not the point. Yeah. <laughs> and, it is and it's really not the point. Right. The point of the matter is that the, especially the women in the church have these feelings about this doctrine that, that we need to, that I speak here on, I'm representative of all men everywhere. We probably need to be you taking have that role more, more, <laughs> more. <laughs> we need to take more seriously. Yes, I, I've been aware of this. So as I mentioned, like I've worked on this in my fiction, some of which, um, the biggest project, of which is unpublished and unfinished. And I realized now why I couldn't finish is because I hadn't really understood the pain aspect of, of polygamy sufficiently. And there is a lot of pain. And I think the key principle here is by the fruit of this doctrine, we can know it. And there has never been a time in church history that I'm aware of where women were both outwardly and inwardly enthusiastic and finding joy in this. I don't think that's ever happened. And the idea that men find joy in it, I think, is, is also quite difficult to prove. Um, they might take um, pride in it. Uh, or some other quasi-positive emotion, but I don't know that joy is exactly... There's great evidence of joy. Mm -hmm. I mean, even Joseph Smith, whose life, for all its difficulties, seemed really powered by joy, um, it has severely damaged the relationship with Emma. It required a lot of secrecy. It required a lot of um, um, subterfuge and other things, none of which brought him any joy you could argue it directly directly led to his death uh that's a very easy argument to make mm -hmm. in fact it would be difficult to argue that it had nothing to do with his death <laughs> <laughs> like we talk about in our like even the last episode we were talking or even maybe the one before we're talking about like the extermination order right and it, mm -hmm. and things like that these persecutions these burnings you know the um the flight across the plains a lot of these um persecutions are a direct result of this of this practice you could say oh but the mormons moved in you know and they took over lo local government well, that may and, have been true yeah and missouri was predates this but um but still certainly for nauvoo that's not the, certainly that's not for the nauvoo for utah in particular um it's hard to imagine that without polygamy the government would have been cared quite so much about these people who finally went far away mm -hmm. Okay, less well, a good point. It did predate a lot of the massacres and things that happened right. in Missouri and, and and all that kind of mm -hmm. stuff. A lot of the real source of source of um, 
So let's talk about how Carolyn Pearson feels <laughs> about the early church. <laughs> um, so she, in one of her chapters, goes through um, several yes. questions. Yes, but let's back up a okay. page, actually. In chapter three, the why of Mormon polygamy, she she talks about the specific um, who, what, where, when, why, how questions. Yes. Right. So who did Joseph? Who did polygamy? Joseph Smith did. He was eventually first. thousands of his followers. Okay, where did it take place? Kirtland, Ohio, at Illinois. Oh, that started clear back in Kirtland. Apparently, was that where the Fanny marriage happened? This I don't know about. Because uh, the Fanny marriage. That sounds very grotesque. If you're listening in Britain, I apologize for my vulgarity. <laughs> Fanny Bryce was the first plural wife of Joseph Smith, and that happened way before Section 132 was a thing. Mm -hmm. In the current um, edition of the scriptures, it has this nice little euphemistic line in the introduction, something like, um, although portions of this principle were understood prior to the receiving of the revelation. Mm -hmm. Or, yeah, I don't know. I'm not sure I buy that, but... Um, Okay, so it was it was way before Nauvoo then. Right. So when okay. did it, when did it take place? It began in the mid eighteen thirties, flourished underground in the eighteen forties, was publicly acknowledged in eighteen fifty two, was an essential aspect of Mormon life for decades, and it ended in by two manifestos in eighteen ninety 1890 and nineteen oh four. However, there were lots of breakout you know groups yes. that kept trying to do it still to today. Okay, so what happened? So we're on the what part. Joseph introduced the principle, right? He yes. had 30 wives. It becomes the principle capitalized eventually. Mm -hmm. That's and how important it becomes. It becomes a big deal. And then the question, last question is, why did it happen? And what, yeah. what she does is she goes through many different possible reasons, right? Many of which I had heard before and had even accepted. Mm -hmm. But as it ends up, don't stand up to scrutiny. They don't, okay? We'll do, we're not going to go through all of them. No, though take too long. this is a fabulous chapter. It's really and I good. I highly recommend it. And any of the any of the kind of rationalization and justification kind of goes away. L how about I just read the um, suggested reasons, but we don't go into why they fall apart? Okay, sure. So quickly, it was necessary to multiply and replenish the earth. It helped the church grow very quickly. Polygamy was needed to order in order to provide husbands for a large surplus of female members, especially widows. Polygamy produced more faithful members of the church. There had to be a restoration of all things. The Doctrine and Covenants... Uh, suggests that God commanded polygamy of these Old Testament folk. There are more righteous women than men, so more women will qualify for the highest degree of glory. Monogamy leads to a corrupt society. That one doesn't get said so much anymore. <laughs> polygamy was important for kingdom building on earth and in heaven and is essential for the highest exaltation in the celestial kingdom. Polygamy is too sacred for most people to understand. It is gospel meat and most of us only are ready for milk. And polygamy produces healthier children and thus a superior society. And <laughs> all of those are easily deflated Every once one closely examined. Yeah. She, she's able to deflate most of them in a single paragraph. Yeah. Um, okay. So, at, at the end of this section, um, she describes uh, her relationship with this doctrine, right, in page 69. Page 69. All right. We're going to be doing a lot of readings. I hope that's okay with everybody who's listening. Um, <laughs> too bad if it's too, not. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> Everyone whose life polygamy touches must, in his or her, in her or his own way, come to terms with where it came from and why it happened. Many people believe that God commanded it for God's old reasons. Um, skipping forward, I believe, 
Um, um, many, I believe that Joseph's personal, personal desire played a part, but I agree with biographer Richard Bushman that nothing in his later life excited Joseph more than the idea of joining together the generations of humanity from start to finish, and that Joseph did not lust for women so much as he lusted for kin. I thought was an interesting I found that very compelling, story. and it does match Joseph Smith's personality a lot, and explains a lot of the other things that happened related to sealing. He wanted to, people just wanted to be sealed to everybody. One big eternal family. Right. Right. Um, so, here's, here's her, here's, here's, here's the best part. When heaven has an earthquake, you fall to your knees and feel to the rubble to find the pieces of God. When my eternal, temple-blessed marriage shattered... Remember, she, yes. from last time we talked about how her husband um, came out as gay and then died of AIDS, right? But she cared for him. Yes. And <laughs> saying it like that is so, so it sounds so heartless. Yes. It's a big deal. Okay. Right. Sorry. There's another book on that. Okay. Temple blessed marriage shattered and everything that had been meaningful lay in jumbled shards around me. I had to slowly and carefully pick up every single piece and examine it turning it over and over to see if it was worthy to keep and to use in building a new house of meaning. As I gathered the broken pieces of God, I used only my authority, only my relationship with the divine, and the good small voice that speaks inside of me to appraise them. I threw away many, and I kept many, assembling the bright pieces into one great thought. I asked only, do I see God's fingerprints on this? Does this, make, does this little piece feel godly? Does it speak of love? That made it easy. I was forever finished with the insane attempt to love a God who hurts me. When I pick up the little piece of God-ordained polygamy, I smiled because there was no question. I thanked the God of love, and I threw that piece away. Reminds me of Marie Kondo, to be honest. Yes, <laughs> I hadn't thought of that. But polygamy yeah. doesn't spark joy for her, and so no. she thanked it and put it away. Yeah, and as I think about people who have talked about polygamy in my past, which, as I said, hasn't been recently, uh, but people who talk about polygamy in church it really wasn't about sparking joy. It really, it was sort of this like, you know how Solomon and David are lambasted by the Lord for their they are. collections of wives. And I often felt that the men I heard talking about this when I was a teenager, that was kind of their motivation. This idea of like this keenly collection of women. It was never something that was romantic or beautiful or kind or generous. It was accumulative. In its nature. Um, I do feel it's important that we read one of the stories. Do you have one in mind? I do, but it's a hard one to read. Well, that's what I'm for. I have it marked in our show notes as that one story. Ah, that's what that means. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, I'll read it. Okay. Um, so this is one of these stories that came from the survey she sent out. Yeah. One of her responses. So this isn't Carolyn Pearson's voice. This is someone else. And remember how we, how, how we said that the point of this episode is emotion, right? It's mm -hmm. not It's not a question of what happened. It's not a question of what the doctrine exists. But it's a question of how people feel about it. Okay? Upon learning as, of polygamy as a teenage girl, I felt confusion and fear. I felt like God did not love me or value me as much as he did his sons. I felt my like my importance and significance was reduced to what I gave to a man and nothing more. I struggled for many years to accept this doctrine, hearing so many excuses, but none that help. Um, let's get this part. I can only assume that my eternal future, as defined by the LDS Church, is to be a nameless, voiceless mother whose only job is to be one of many, one who produces offspring and is cut off from her children. 
so they do not defile her name as they do God's. I think this doctrine... Um, okay, and then she condemns the, the doctrine. Mm -hmm. um, um, so what made this one stick out? It just... I felt this raw emotion in this woman who um, had this... What I would say is a mistake... You know, a mistaken belief, okay? That she was in, inferior to men, right? Well, but that, that, doesn't that, the doctrine support that? But it that? derived from this doctrine, right? Yes. And so, regardless of how you feel about the doctrine, um, and the reason I'm, I keep couching it this way is because I know people who would be very apologetic towards this part of the church. And by apologetic, mm -hmm. I mean try to rationalize it, right? But what we're, what Carolyn Pearson does in this book is to say, stop doing that. Yeah. Okay? Well, it's not that different, in my opinion, from the lousy excuses that were thrown around to justify the race um, inequalities that existed in the church for so long. It's a very similar tone that a lot of these things are set in. This might seem kind of grim to where we've gotten at this point. Okay, <laughs> if you could think of this podcast episode as having an emotional arc, we could be at the nadir. Okay? <laughs> yes, and it could be. At one point, I looked at the missus, and, I, and she what? was obviously struggling with reading mm -hmm. the book, and I said, keep going. There's hope at the end yes. of it. Okay? So, dear listener, there's light at the end of this tunnel. I just read King Lear last week, and... Well, hold, not just... And, you, come on, you can't just drop that like that. I'm teaching it, so I, I was <laughs> oh, reading okay, it. But okay. um, Edgar says at one point, this That's is like not the worst. dropping, right? Okay, back is, in yeah. the day when I used to hang out with Christopher Lloyd. <laughs> <laughs> so, okay. um, anyway, Edgar says, this is not the worst. The worst is not when you can say this is the worst. Right? As long as you can say this is the worst, it can still get worse. Okay, can you, as long as you can say this is... Okay, okay, it can still get worse. Yes, that's right. All right, so um, I'd like to talk a bit about the light at the end of the tunnel, unless you want to go somewhere else. Um, I did want to say something else. Oh, I wanted to talk about this idea of the restoration of all things just a little bit. Okay. Because I, I, we are a restoration church. That is our reason for living, right, is to bring back the primitive church, as it says in the Articles of Faith. And I think we really need to be careful about how we use this word. Um, when Carolyn talks about this idea, she says, we move forward, not backward, right? We're not going to restore an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. That's right. And um, I think this is an important thing for us to think about. Um, when uh, the changes were made to seminary to bring it, to, to put it in line with Sunday school, which is a pretty simple change and the sort of thing that people have been talking about for as long as I've been aware of seminary. Um, the official announcement from the church called this change as being part of an ongoing restoration. And I have a real problem with that phrasing really? because I don't think in the primitive church Jesus was sure that seminary and Sunday school were aligned. Mm -hmm. I just, I mean, it's not in the scriptures and I don't think they had Sunday school or seminary. And it, and the idea of home-based gospel learning is great, but when you're all illiterate and nobody has the scriptures, like, it, it doesn't feel like a restoration, right? This is this is more about forward momentum and moving into the future and making the world better than it's ever been before, which yeah. is part of what we do, right? We're not just trying to go back to AD 35. Mm -hmm. We're trying to make the world something closer to what Zion would be. Mm -hmm. And so I think we really need to be careful how we think about this idea of restoration, like what deserves to be restored, what actually should be restored and what is new, what is what are mistakes from the past that we don't want to repeat. Just because something's in the past doesn't mean it was right. And just because something's in the future doesn't mean it can't have um, authority or importance unless it happened in the past. 
I think I think the word restoration is something we need to really analyze. And I think it's being abused when we talk about polygamy, which is not something I would have said two weeks ago. Mm -hmm. um, reading this book has has really focused my thinking and is and this is going to lead into her solutions. Mm -hmm. um, but I've gone from being someone who was happy not to think about this, except for occasionally dealing with it through through my art, but uh, to someone who now actually has kind of formed opinions. Mm -hmm. Um, anyway, let's now let's uh, let's jump in. Let's let's move forward. All right. So what she does is. Um, oh, by the way, my copy is signed. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> by Christopher Lloyd. I'm not by Christopher Lloyd. <laughs> Listen, Christopher Lloyd and I are no longer no longer on speaking terms. Uh, that's a shame. <laughs> um, okay. So she, what she does, she, she talks about the history of the, of of the doctrine. She talks about its effect on widows, which we're not gonna we're not really covering here. No. But this is something that is, you know, it's really you got to read it's the moving. book. We can't do everything, but yeah. it's 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 really it's it's really hard. Um, and then at the end, she talks about what are we gonna do? Chapter eleven towards a partnership tomorrow, which is which is just really great. Is this the final chapter or the penultimate chapter? It's the penultimate. Penultimate. Okay. Okay, why don't you go ahead and read this, this paragraph. Here. About Jimmy Carter? Yeah. All right. Jimmy Carter, the first person elected president in my lifetime. Uh -huh. In 2009, former President Jimmy Carter severed his relationship of six decades with the Southern Baptist Church because of its rigid stance against the equality of women. I remember this happening. He said in a TED Talk in 2015 that a major contribution to the ongoing worldwide abuse of women and girls is that, in general, quote, men don't give a damn Quote, that men may, I'd love to hear someone say that in general conference, <laughs> that men, men, I don't know if I would or not, actually, um, that men may say they don't believe in discrimination against women and girls, but they still, they enjoy a privileged position that's hard to give up, especially for the majority of men who control the university system, control the military system, control the governments of the world, and control the great religions. My personal experience in Mormondom is not that men don't give a damn, but that most men do not understand. They have only seen through the glass, the dark glass of patriarchy and cannot yet envision the new world. And so it is up to us, William, William, hey, William, William, this is on you. It is up to us. Can you imagine William's listening right now? <laughs> Sorry like, to put all this on you, William. <laughs> Get to it, buddy. Come on. <laughs> and so it is up to us, women and girls, to be the messengers, the teachers, and the guides. And this we help prepare our people for that new world in which God, the divine alchemist, will take the base metal of the sins of the fathers and turn it into gold. All right, so she says, here are the specific beliefs. Yeah, you know, I want to jump in real quick, and this is going to be possibly self-aggrandizing, so I apologize ahead of time. Aggrandize away. Um, but I think that this is the direction I was heading before I read the book. Uh -huh. um, and the reason I say that, and this is me promoting a book, here it comes. Uh, but I mentioned how in this early story, I dealt with polygamy, and I, it sort of had a happy ending, like polygamy was accepted, and it was fine. Mm -hmm. um, in the story I most recently published, which is called The Prophetess of Mars, it's about a Mormon colony on Mars in the 1920s. It sounds awesome. Um, it is awesome, I think. No, <laughs> well, it's, it's available on Amazon. Um, but uh, a friend of mine who read it, um, said after the first couple of pages he was terrified because he thought it was going to become a polygamy story. Mm -hmm. Which had not even occurred to me when I read it. Like, this is a story where all the men die on Mars. Spoiler alert. It mm -hmm. happens in the first couple of pages. It's not a huge uh -huh. spoiler. Um, but the women have to deal 
you know, they have to take charge. They have to be in charge. And they've, and they've de facto been in charge for a while. Read the story. Um, but the point is, I think subconsciously I've realized that a lot of our ways forward can't be done by men because um, we've, we've had an unfair balance of power for so long that whatever conclusions we've reached are dead ends we've made all on our own. Um, it, I think we're stuck in certain ways. And the way forward is through women. And so that's, you know, when 90% of the talks in general conference are given by men, I feel like we are missing something very important. I think, and we, I think we recognize the irony that this is, there's two dudes here on Spotcat saying this. Yes. But, um, you know, there's a, maybe you saw this article. There was a, um, a basketball player, I want to say, who wrote an article down the New York Times recently. It just came out. Um, Did not see it. In wit, and I'm gonna I'm gonna edit the podcast at this point and say the guy's name. Okay. <laughs> okay. The article is by Kyle Crover. The name of the article is "Privileged," and the source is the Players Tribune. Between the beeps. <laughs> Thank you. And uh, he writes about racism and white and and white privilege, right? Okay. And and um, the way he describes it is that is that oftentimes his feelings were not that he didn't care about racism and not that... Wait, wait, wait. Is this a white basketball player? Oh, yeah. Okay. Check. Not that he didn't care about racism. It's just that it didn't affect him. And so he didn't make it a priority. Sure. Right? Which is it, easy to do. It, it wasn't something that he had to deal with. And so, yes, he wasn't going to stand for it and everything, but he didn't work at it. He didn't yeah. do something about it, right? Yeah. Um... Working in education, I think about this a lot. Right. Okay. Um, okay. Go ahead. Let's see. Let's say what. Let's see what she says. There are three specific things that she thinks need to be changed. Okay. I don't necessarily ag agree with how she's put them forward. That's okay. Somebody has to make a proposal, or there's nothing to talk about. Belief number one. I will read the bold, mm -hmm. and then you will comment, and I will respond as necessary. Uh, is that a good, good? Is that a plan? Okay. Belief number one. A couple who chooses to marry in the temple can go into that holy place and stand on equal ground. So, if you feel uncomfortable about talking about the nature of the temple ceremony here, I, I really do apologize. See the previous episode. See the previous episode <laughs> when we talked about unutter unutterables, okay? But the but the whole but in the sealing ceremony, um, the man receives the woman and the woman gives herself to the man. Okay? Yes. And the this language is one of the reasons why polygamy um, is a thing in the temple, right? Right. It's, it's, things only pass when, if I remember correctly, the woman both gives and receives, but the man only receives. Yes. And again, if you're uncomfortable with us having used this language on the podcast, and I know that there will be Mormons that are, I apologize, but we can't talk, if we have to be able to talk about this, people really, people really think that this is a, it's something that puts men and women on unequal ground. At the high school today, they had an assembly and they handed out the AP contract, which is a new thing we're doing, in which you sign it and say you will do the work in the class, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, <laughs> unfortunately, this assembly happened two weeks after the drop date for next year. You can't. Oh, you can't. Uh -huh. Now you're trapped in that class. Like that's right. unfair. Yeah. And I think the temple ceiling could be read in that way. Uh -huh. You believe this is a beautiful thing, you love the idea of eternal marriage, and then you get there and you find out that you are giving yourself up to someone who is not giving himself up. Yeah. That is that is a dirty trick to pull on someone. So, again, I just want to say again, I love 
I love the temple. <laughs> yes, yeah, no, I'm not anti-sealing at all, but um, this has always troubled me, but as our white basketball player said, I never really had to think about it, and right. so I chose not to. Right. And so she argues that the language should change and to be equal. And so, um, you know, the temple ceremonies have changed in the past. Um, mm -hmm. and uh, They're always getting refined. If we believe in this idea of continuing revelation, we shouldn't just accept, we should anticipate and look forward to this kind of fine-tuning. And something similar just happened with the endowment. Yes. Um, yes, that's right. So, belief number two. Section 132 of the Doctrine and Covenants will receive an inspired revision with plural marriage removed from the canon so that women and girls will be spared the wounding to our femaleness that we receive today. So we didn't talk about this specifically, but there's language in the latter part of the Doctrine and Covenants, section 132, that some, that some and women read as really, as really damaging. Okay. Yes, and not unreasonably so. Uh -huh. And listen, I reread section 132 as part of this. My oh, you did. It's my, long. Pre my preparation. <laughs> it did take a little while. Yeah. And some of my favorite verses in all of Scripture are in this section. This is the part that I wasn't quite sure I understood what she meant. I believe that she's only saying that only part of it should be revised. I don't think she's dictating how this will happen. Okay, that's I think a good she way to recognizes it. that there's a problem here, but mm -hmm. it's not really her job to to fix it, to adjust the canon. Right. That's somebody else's job, and they should get on their knees. Mm -hmm. And she talks about in the section about how section 132 wasn't part of the original doctrine and covenants. It wasn't. This doctrine and covenants has always been flexible. That's the whole point of the doctrine and covenants. Mm -hmm. And so, as the times change and as things um, change, then we can feel free to rewrite a bit of this. And um, the part, specific verses I love are the parts where it talks about how the man and the woman shall appear before and will become, will just, you know, become as gods mm -hmm. and go forward and through the eternities. And it's actually that those few verses are I've, I actually thought were very pretty. Um, is this wrong of me to say No, that? although I will say, as a seminary teacher, um, when my fellow seminary teacher and I were divvying up the sections uh -huh. um, and how who was going to teach what, there was a there was a an understanding that neither of us wanted to teach 132, mm -hmm. that we were nervous about it because... Because of the ending of it. Because of the ending of it. And in seminary right now, we only have one girl. Yeah. And like eight boys or something. Yeah, that's not a fun thing to drop on her. By the way, mm -hmm. by the way... Even though there's one of you and eight of them. Anyway, if you haven't read Doctor and Covenants yeah. 130, maybe 32, maybe reread it with a different um, lens. And yes. think about um, how some people would feel as they read it. And I don't think there's anything inappropriate with the people of God asking the prophet to pray for further light and knowledge. Mm -hmm. If we don't think that's something we can ask for, then why are we even Latter-day Saints? Like, isn't that, isn't that our whole thing? Isn't that what we're about? I mean, it's a bold thing to do. Say, hey, prophet, I want more knowledge on this thing. But I don't think it's unfair, especially f for something like this that has caused a great deal of pain. Mm -hmm. And again, you can't argue with that. It has. It right? has. It has. That's... This is the evidence. This yes. is the document. She described this book as one of the most important she works she feels like she's ever done. Yes. Right? And, um, and reading it, I couldn't... Har I, I, I obviously agree. So again, belief number belief number one, I totally am totally on board with. Belief number two, I'd like to, I, you know, please, you know, keep some of the language. <laughs> I really do like that part, a few of the verses in the early part. Yes. But that could, but I could just be totally wrong, and maybe the the best thing to do is just drop it. Well, and this is an interesting problem in terms of 
the life of an acolyte? Like, on the one hand, should we be humble? Um, or is it, it, can we be humble and demanding at the same time? Um, I think the answer is yes. It's a difficult thing to manage, but especially if our, the reason we're demanding is out of love, out of concern for um, people who are suffering. Like, I think that's a righteous desire. And it's, an un it's, a, it's a weird thing. Canon is canon, and you don't just mess with it. It's canon, right? Right. The very first sentence of that uh, scripture is, you know, you know, it's essentially these are the words of the Lord, right? Yeah. Yeah, this does um, require us to really consider... We talk about Joseph Smith as being number two to Jesus, and I... Which I I don't have, I love of the that specific phrase, which is which is in a DNC one thirty something five maybe the one John Taylor wrote that no um, man save Jesus alone did more for the salvation of man than Joseph Smith something like that and I don't have a problem with that but the unintended consequence of that phrasing is then Joseph Smith gets to hang out on the same plateau with Jesus and he's still just a mortal person and we need to be careful. Emma did not react favorably to this. No, and I, I think history has slowly come around to her way of thinking. Mm -hmm. It's worth reading the book to get what to get Emma's reaction. But let's go ahead, and it is it's powerful. But let's mm -hmm. keep going here and talk about the third the third point. Okay, here's number three. The doctrine of plural marriage will be disavowed entirely and no longer considered the word of God as pertains to history, the present, or the eternal future. This one, this is the big hitter. This is the big hitter, and this is the one that I have always been afraid to consider. Mm -hmm. But after reading the book, I agree with her. This is, and look, I was surprised that I agree also. Okay? Mm -hmm. um, so, she talks, and let's just let that sink in for a minute. Right? It will be disavowed and no longer considered the word of God, past, present, or future. Past, present, or future. Okay? Um, it's just time to, to... She argues that it's just time to let it go. And, um, you know, we tell people we're not polygamists. Let's be serious. To, let's yeah. be serious about it. Yes. Of all the things in the church that is a real barrier to entry, this is one of them. Right? Mm-hmm. One of my favorite stories about my mission is that when people really want to be baptized and join the church, they will do, they will lift heaven and heaven and earth to do so, right? There was a little old woman that I taught, and she had a wig, and she didn't want, because she had, uh -huh. like, she was undergoing treatment or something, mm. and she didn't want to get it, she didn't want to take it off, because she was embarrassed, right? But as soon as she got that testimony, that belief that mm -hmm. Joseph Smith really did see God, that the church really is true, we couldn't keep that wig on her the day, the, <laughs> on the day that it was time to be baptized. She just, you know, wanted to get into it. But that said, this is one of the stopping points for people coming in, yeah. and one of the reasons that people are that people leave. Yes, I think next to the way the church is poorly handled, our LGBT population, I think this is either one or number two, and the reasons for people I know personally who've left the, left the church. Right. And I don't want to make it sound like that's the only reason I think. I also, and perhaps even more importantly, recognize what she's saying, that this doctrine is, act, is, is a painful one. So she says, yes. make it go away. Make it go How away. How does she say we should do that? Um, hmm, I wasn't prepared to think about that question. I mean, I was, she, 
<laughs> she does talk about other things that have gone away. This one is particularly problematic, right? Adam God was never in the Doctrine and Covenants. Mm -hmm. Blacks can't have the priesthood was never in the Doctrine and Covenants. Mm -hmm. uh, Blood Atonement was never in the Doctrine and Covenants. Um, church basketball was never in the Doctrine and Covenants. Yeah, that's right. Uh, so when those things go away, it's it doesn't have the risk at the same level of impacting our truth claims. And to us as a church, our impact of being the only true and living church is, is so important that I think sometimes we treat that phrase almost as an idol. We would rather be the true and living church than be the true and living church. We would rather seem to be the true and living church than to admit error and become the true and living you church. You have always been right. Right. We, we feel that being true and living means we could never have made a mistake. Mm -hmm. And that's why so much has been covered up in the history, which we have, we're growing up and we're doing much better about that now. Yeah. Um, see saints the book right see saints um but this is a particularly difficult one because it's in the doctrine and covenants mm -hmm. it's right there mm -hmm. and it has shaped and controlled the lives of so many in the past yes i mean as soon as you say this isn't a thing anymore like there will be joy and rejoicing but people who suffered their entire lives will be like why why did i suffer it in this way what right. was it for or people will just be confused they won't know what the state of their yeah. marriages in the past are even like Right. And it affects a lot of people a lot of different ways. I believe it was President Nelson, maybe you'll remember this, um, not so long ago in General Conference, talked about his sealing to his second wife and he was grateful that he was sealed to both of his wives, like in General Conference. I believe it was President Nelson. It was one of the 15. But um, I'm taking that away from him, is yeah. what I'm suggesting. Yeah. You don't get to have both of them. Yeah. So the conclusion is, of course, that if you take this doctrine away, that you have to go back on the let God sort it out at the end, right? Yes, which I'm enthusiastic about. Yeah. I think that is a great statement of faith. The idea is that God loves us. He doesn't want us to be unhappy. He says that marriage is eternal, right? Mm -hmm. Trust him. He'll work it out. At the end of the day, we'll be fine. We'll be happy, right? But this barrier, <laughs> which kind of prevents that from happening, yeah. would need to go away. And according to her, and according to I think us, I think I think I think Carolyn is right. Polygamy has to go in a very permanent and eternal way. Do you have somewhere else you want to go before we get to conclusion? So we talked about a long time ago about how pioneer women had talked up polygamy as it was a good thing. Yeah. For instance, they said, well, because of polygamy, I'm able to come out here and go to medical school. Because of polygamy, I'm able to spend my time as a suffragist. Right. There was right. a lot of pro-women arguments that women made at the time for polygamy. And I just accepted those public statements. And Carolyn's book points out that in their journals, they were suffering intensely from these terrible relationships. The one that really got me was the, um, I can't remember her name now. Is it Emmeline Wells, maybe? Yeah. Who said that, um, I have to accept this or else I'll lose my house. Oh, yes. Right. <laughs> yeah, it was a form of almost economic terrorism in a way. Yeah. That was surprising to me. Yeah, so... Um, the letter is from Emma Ray McKay. Is that her name? Am I getting that right? Is it Emma Ray? Yeah, Emma Ray McKay, who is the wife of David O. McKay. Uh, so, you know, she's an older lady here in the 1950s when this letter is written. Um, the letter is written in response to a woman who had sent her and President McKay a copy of a book she'd written about her ancestor, who's an ancestor of mine also, which is how I have access to this information. And in the letter, um, Sister McKay is grateful for the gift. Um, and then she talks about, it's interesting to read this, like she's avoiding mentioning polygamy 
but you can tell this is what she's talking about. I'm going to skip a couple paragraphs. You can read the whole letter. It's worth reading. We'll put the link down there. Um, she says, The narration of the many little things that made up life in those old days is very interesting and too sacred to be printed for the public, which I hope you will never think of doing. I am so disgusted with the author of The Giant Joshua that I can scarcely contain myself. The outside people, or rather non-members of our church, do not understand our life during polygamous days, and personal experiences of this kind should never be given to them. The publishers must always have something disgusting to tell, even if they have to add something themselves. And then she goes back to being nice. But you can see that mm -hmm. for Emma Ray McKay, who loved the arts, this novel, which was published by a Latter-day Saint with a, with a national house. Did we talk about the giant Joshua? I feel like we did in a previous no, we episode. We never no, we haven't. Have. We should sometime. Um, it's, it's a good novel. Uh, it's about polygamy in southern Utah during pioneer days. And... It's very honest. And when I read it, I was like, oh, this is kind of negative. I see what she's, where she's coming from. But now, with the additional knowledge I have from reading Carolyn and, and all these personal stories, I realize that what Emma Ray McKay is expressing is not so much disgust of the way the outside world is talking about polygamy, but disgust that they know the truth of polygamy. Like, we've put on this, this nice veneer of, like, polygamy is good, it's from God, we're doing it, it's holy, it's important, it's going to get us to the top level of the celestial kingdom. But inside you can see that she didn't want anyone else to be able to talk about it because there's no good way to talk about it. Mm -hmm. Okay. Anyway, let's go back to the book. Yeah, back to the book. Um, uh, boy, again, um, it's very possible that you, um, listener are very much in disagreement with the things that we're saying. Please read the book and then get in contact with us, you know, either through the Face and Hat Twitter account or through our own Twitter accounts. And if you have something you want to say, um, we can respond to it. Um, this is one of the more difficult episodes I think we might ever do because it it's not it's not uh, it's not the logical rigorous way of studying the gospel that I'm used to. Yeah, and it's not theoretically dangerous. It is something that is actually dangerous and hurting people, which means that the, um, the risks are greater and the, the importance, I would argue, is also greater. Because ultimately, religion is about people. It's not about facts and logic, even though that's what Aaron likes. Scientist. <laughs> Stupid scientist. Okay, the conclusion, page 201. 201. So here's her... her Here's a paragraph that she did during her reading at the AML as her concluding, one of her, one of her concluding parts yes. of the story. All right. So for this section of the podcast, we're going to be actually playing Carolyn Pearson's voice. Okay. So you told me that we have Paris permission Fox to. has given me permission. Yes. Okay. Um, so we're going to play this part of her, of her closing statements for the AML. This is part of the conclusion of the book. Yes. When the ghost is finally banished, each young and tender girl will learn at church and at home that if she marries, she will become the singular and full partner of a husband of her choice, and that her divine nature and individual worth are such that she will never be one of here or in heaven. The writings and the folklore around polygamy, the old stories and the statements even of prophets, will have been put away in the drawer marked expired and will generate no more fear than ghost stories 
told around the campfire. Every individual member of the church and every congregation will feel more open to the presence of our long-lost Heavenly Mother, for the disturbing ghost has been evicted from both heaven and earth, and the glorious goddess, full and soul partner that she is in the creation and sustaining of life, is welcomed back into the family. Marriage will be, marriages will be sweeter. And then a, a, a widow will be able to mourn her loss and move forward. And a man who marries a widow will do so in full anticipation of full joy. And intertwined with every benefit will be the supreme one, the shedding of an old and debilitating distrust in a God that for many faithful LDS women and men has brought untenable spiritual and theological dissonance. A God who has prepared an eternity that will break the hearts of women and render them forever subordinate will be dismissed as preposterous. We will see with more clarity and with deeper appreciation the one in the mirror, the one on the other side of the bed, and the one who thought this all up in the first place. A new buoyancy will render us a stronger people, a people more prepared to gift the Lord with our portion of Zion. Joseph Smith was a radical egalitarian. He believed that uh, people of different races were equal in the eyes of God. He believed people of different sexes were equal in the sights of God. Polygamy is, does not fit very well into this narrative of Joseph Smith, but I do believe that that is an essentially true statement about Joseph Smith. He was, he was radically egalitarian. All are equal in the sight of God. And if we're really interested in following in his footsteps as the great prophet of our dispensation, I think we have to consider that, you know, even the great prophet of our dispensation may have taken a wrong step and we need to walk backwards through the snow a step or two to get back in the trail he meant to make. He died mm -hmm. right when this was happening. Mm -hmm. He didn't get a t chance to fine tune it like he did some other things. Mm -hmm. And then the reward for doing so? Well, I think that it's not hard to see in our church right now that we are not as radically egalitarian as we could be. Um, and I am, have no interest in suggesting what that would look like or how we get there, but it's, it, doesn't take, it doesn't take a particularly observant person to realize that men and women are not treated equally in the church and that eternal polygamy's connection to this phenomenon is not incidental. Whenever there is a policy or a doctrine of the church that you find cognitively dissonance. I have found that there's only th three ways to approach the problem. One, your understanding of the problem is wrong. <laughs> you need to um, accept the doctrine as it is because it is correct. Okay? It's a possibility. You've got to be humble enough to consider that possibility. You have to be humble enough to consider that. Number two, you are right. The policy is is either wrong or a temporary step or stepping stone to something better and will be changed in the future. Have faith. 
abide, things will get better. And the third option, which is equally important, is that nobody really knows what they're talking about. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Okay? Carolyn Pearson might be wrong about everything. We might be wrong about everything. The Our understanding of the scriptures might just be wrong. And nobody really knows. And we have to accept that as a possible reality as well. Yes, and I think Joseph Smith would agree with that. But one thing that is cannot be denied is that the emotions that these women and men have written in this book are real. Right. And whatever the answer is, God is not a God of pain, and he will come up with a way to make this all better. And we just gotta, we've got to study, we've got to talk about it, we've got to share our opinions on, on platforms and try to help people understand and we have to think and we have to and we have to come to conclusions and be humble enough to admit that we don't really know everything. And what we can't do is ignore the second commandment because we think we're engaging in one of those first two options that you suggested. Right. As you mentioned earlier, people should feel free to contact us with their with their responses to what we have said and especially after they've read the book. Um, I think we should be open to the possibility of a response episode where if if we do receive sufficient responses we do respond to them because um, we're scratching a lot of wounds here and we might be creating wounds in people who hadn't had them before if we do we apologize right that's not our goal to hurt but I do think that until we recognize that we have a um, you know nasty cut in our leg, we can't treat it properly to avoid gangrene. You can't you can't ignore these things. Um, so there you go, Carolyn Pearson's The Ghost of Eternal Polygamy. Buy it on Amazon. It's not that expensive. No, get it's it worth your, your time. It's worth your time. And and maybe you'll have the same experience I did, a kind of radical change in relationship to this topic. Amen.